Hey everyone, I'm Portia Flowers. Hey, and I'm Cynthia Dorsey. And this is Young, Black, and Brave. Young, Black, and Brave is a new podcast, but most importantly, it's a space where we can critically review cinema and discuss the representation of Black women in film. Black women, of course, have had a place in the film industry for some time now, but we want to take a look at it and talk about what that means. When stories are being told, who's included in the storytelling process? Who is centered, who is supporting, and who is erased? These are important conversations to have, particularly as Black women ourselves. We should be able to critique the media that is reflected back to us, and we're gonna try to do just that. It's a new year, new decade, new podcast. We are young, black, and brave. There are a lot of important shifts happening for women in the film industry, and black women should be at the center of these shifts, paid equally and represented authentically. So thank you, Portia, for including me in this discourse. Thank you. Hey, everybody, welcome back to episode 16 of Young, Black, and Brave. Today, we are so excited to have with us a very special guest, Miss Cynthia Lully. Cynthia is first-generation American-born of Namibian parents, and she was raised in downtown New York City. She studied international relations, information technology, information management, and library science at the Syracuse University. She has 20 years of experience in the public sector, working for nonprofits, and right now she works as an international civil servant for the DAG Library for about 10 years now. Cynthia is Portia and I's loved soror of the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And we are so happy to have her here. Welcome, Cynthia. Aw, thank you so, so much. It is an honor to be here. Yay! Yay! (laughs) So we usually start the podcast talking about something non-related to the film or limited series that we're talking about. Um, So I just want to know what you guys have been watching. Is there anything that we you can tell our viewers to pull up and watch while we're stuck in a house during this quarantine? Ooh, well, I found out around to watching The Shy because I have Amazon Prime now. Mm. So <laughs> I feel a little leaked on uh, on this and I'm just I'm enjoying it. And the vein of Top Boy, that's another one on Netflix. Um, it's really, really good. And then I got around to watching the last season of Pose. Um, I think that one is also Netflix. So uh, those are just three I've mentioned Pose, Top Boy, and The Shy. Wow, I love The Shy. I haven't seen Top mm-hmm. Boy, and I love Pose. I'm obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. What about you, Portia? Um, well, I've never heard of Top Boy, so I'm going to have to add that to my list. Pose and The Shy are already on my list. I got a long list of things I need to watch. I'm so behind. 
Um, but I've been, I've been kind of, uh, going after comfort watching. <laughs> I don't know if that's a real term, but just stuff that I can watch and just kind of feel all right about. So I've been watching a lot of, um, I've been watching the new season of, uh, Somebody Feed Phil mm. on Netflix. So it's just like a travel, you know, food show, real easy peasy. <laughs> I'm just watching this man eat food. And uh, and then I've also been catching up on, I think this is the final season, or at least it's the newest season of Kim's Convenience. It's a Canadian show um, about a, a Korean immigrant family, and they own this convenience store. The parents own a convenience store, and they have two adult children and just kind of following them around. Um, and I want to say the, the guy that plays the son, his name is Jim Lou or, or something like that. I'm, I'm sorry if I messed his name up, but he was recently announced as um, uh, a new lead for a Marvel movie. So they're going to have their first Asian superhero. Um, and who knows when, I guess it's going to come out in a couple of years, but you know, with the pandemic, things have kind of got shifted. But um, yeah, so if, if you haven't heard of Kim's Convenience, but you might kind of keep your ear towards what's happening with Marvel movies. Uh, that's the connection there. But yeah, it's a good show. Yeah. I, I, Ooh, as long as... Go ahead. Cynthia. Sorry, Cynthia. Just real quick portion. As you mentioned, Asian Americans, I just thought of Never Have I Ever on Netflix with Mindy Kaling. It's really and funny. It'll take you back to high school and about just, you know, being first generation in the country. And um, yeah, the young star in it is really really adorable so never have I ever on Netflix okay mm-hmm. yeah I, I you had mentioned um Kim's Convenience before portion I started watching it but I'm only on like episode two <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, but pretty much I've been um I've been working on this documentary for about a year and a half now so I'm in the process of watching other documentaries just to get a feel of how the directors and producers put together their storyline. So I wa- I've watched um, The Rape of Reese Taylor, which is on Hulu, uh, just tells the story of Reese Taylor, 1944. She was raped by six white men in Alabama. And um, what I learned from that documentary is that Rosa Parks used to be an investigative journalist for the NAACP. And so whenever a woman was raped by white men, she would go to that woman and interview her and they would try to rally around that woman. And I never knew that. So I was really happy to learn that about Rosa Parks, more about her than just sitting, you know, on the bus. She had a a, a very um, wealthy history um, attached to her. And another one, I, uh, a controversial documentary I watched was On the Record, which um, it features the women that, um, that are um, accusing a sexual assault from Russell Simmons. Yes. So it's, it's, um, they are, it documents their stories. Um, the main, uh, 
case study, Drew Dixon, she also um, talks about that same assault from L.A. Reid. So that was just very interesting uh, to watch and hear the account of. And it was controversy behind that because Oprah had pulled out of executor, executive producer um, on that one. And then recently, I, as a child, I grew up reading all of the Babysitter's Club books. And so now <laughs> Netflix has the Babysitter's Club series and I'm all in. I think I'm like on episode six and it just recently came out. So I'm really excited. Um, it blends perfectly. I feel like the old and the new. Um, I'm mm. really grateful that my goddaughter gets to see, you know, she read the Babysitter's Club book. She's really into it. But it's more now it's more of a graphic novel, but she gets to see it, you know, the visual uh, adaptation of the novels. And um, Alicia Silverstone is playing the mom, which is, you know, our decade. Clueless was it, you know, Clueless was the so it's really nice to get that that um, nostalgia all in one package. So that's what I've watched. Oh, wow. Yeah. I got some things I need to add to my list now. Thank you all for telling me what you're watching. (laughs) All right. So today we are still on our high of analyzing self-made inspired by the life of Madam C.J. Walker, which was released in 2020 on Netflix. Uh, Cynthia will be reviewing with us part four, which is titled A Credit to the Race. Just a brief synopsis. Um, Self-Made is a fictionalized depiction of the untold and highly irreverent story of black hair care pioneer and mogul Madam C.J. Walker and how she overcame the hostile turn of the century America epic rivalries, tumultuous marriages, and some trifling family to become America's first black self-made female millionaire. Portia, tell us about um, part four and who the crew was, cast and crew. Okay. Um, Okay, so the episode summary is as follows. Um, As Sarah is expanding her empire out of New York City, she learns that she is dying and begins to pressure Lilia uh, to provide her with an heir, unaware that Lilia is in love with a woman and has been in a relationship with her for years. Meanwhile, Charles returns, wanting to finalize his divorce with Sarah and threatens to reveal the secret behind her formula if she doesn't sign the papers. Yeah. For this part four episode entitled A Credit to the Race, we have Demaine Davis as our director. She's back again. She directed part three. Um, Also back again as writer for this this particular episode is Nicole Jefferson Asher. She wrote part one. Uh, So great to see them back and of course we have the cast most of the cast is back again uh so we have octavia spencer as sarah breedlove or aka madam cj walker tiffany haddish in the role as lilia her daughter 
uh, Carmen Ijogo is back again as Addie. Blair Underwood as uh, C.J. Walker, Charles James Walker, which is Sarah's husband. Um, Kevin Carroll uh, back as Ransom, who is Sarah's lawyer. Um, we also see Sydney Morton as Dora, uh, C.J.'s girlfriend now, I guess mistress. Um, and we also see an appearance by uh, the character of W.E.B. Du Bois, played by Cornelia Smith Jr. Mm. Um, and now for this uh, part four episode, we see a few new faces. Um, we have in the role of John D. Rockefeller, Frank Moore, who is a veteran Canadian actor. You go on his IMDb page. It's actually quite long. I'm not going to list it all, but he has a lot of credits. Um, we have Peaches, who is Lilia's new special friend that we will learn a little bit more about. And she is played by Kia King. She is um, also a Canadian actress. So as we talked about in a previous episode, this was filmed in Canada. So they actually got quite a few Canadian actors and actresses in this uh, film or miniseries. Um, so Kia King, um, she's had roles in the television series Van Helsing and Handmaid's Tale. So some of, some uh, people might recognize her from those shows. Mm-hmm. And we have Kiki Hamill playing Sari Mae Bryant. She's also a Canadian actress and at least her, at least on her IMDb page, is kind of short. So I'm thinking that she's um, she might be a bit of a newcomer, um, at least to television and film. But, um, but yeah, I'm sure we'll see more of her um, in years to come. Uh, so again, our fun fact, our fun fact is that uh, this is a four part miniseries on Netflix. And it's based on the biography On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, written by Alilia Bundle, who is the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. So, why don't we just go around and just give our first kind of overall impressions of part four of Cynthia Lowy. So, yeah, so... We got Cynthia Dorsey, who is my co-host, but Cynthia Lully as like as our guest. So I'm gonna have to say Cynthia L, Cynthia D, or call <laughs> folks by their last name <laughs> <laughs> to keep everybody straight. So Lully, we'll go with you. What were your overall impressions of this final installment of Self Made? Well, this is where I guess Madam C.J. Walker. Um, just off the bat being confronted with her health issues. She's thinking about what she immediately prompted to think about what she's going to leave behind, right? What's the future of her company and um, who's going to lead the company when, when she's gone, right? So she's um, asking her daughter to produce an heir and she also thinks about expanding the business on in another level. She wants to have a big convention. She just wants everyone to come together uh, or create either create more community around that convention or inspire the women who work for her to um, branch out or to do better. Um, so towards the end, we also found out 
a lot more about the women who work for her, the, the opportunities she's created, Madam C.J. Walker created for, for them by having them work for her. So um, this, this is, yeah, this is where we find out some more about what the future of Madam C.J. Walker looks like. And then for her daughter, who takes on, um, I guess, a socialite um, type of life where she's entertaining, prominent black folk in Harlem. Um, but she's also, she also created a legacy in, in that regard um, by just creating a safe space for black folk, particularly gay black folk, to also come together and be who they are. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I agree. I think I really did like this episode. Um, I know that we are seeing in this episode lots of things such as, you know, lesbianism, divorce. Um, we also delve into the fact that this was not an era where freedom looked like it should look people were still being lynched um and it just just reminds me that even in 2020 we are still facing these same issues in society Mm -hmm. and so it was just really um just eye-opening to me yes we've come far but we're still fighting there's still um the LGBTQIA community is still fighting for their rights. Women are still fighting for to be respected in um, a white patriarchal society. And we still are faced with black and brown bodies being murdered at, by the hands of whites. And so um, I, I really, it, this, this piece really resonated with me, but it also disturbed me as it pertains to present day. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I mean, I would echo everything that y'all just said. Um, but also I, I just had an appreciation for, um, the span of time that passed. Uh, you could really see that these women are older now. Um, you know, and I felt especially from Lilia, just the maturity level, um, difference between her, the first episode and now this final episode um, where she now has to make some adult choices or, you know, she has to not just uh, kind of think about herself. She has to think about um, the business and being a true partner in her mother's business and how she's going to carry on that legacy and, you know, possible sacrifices that she may have to make in order to keep it going. Um, so I appreciated you know, a bit of a, um, just seeing the arc in her character. Um, and I also appreciated just overall, uh, it was a, it was an emphasis on the, the greater legacy of Madam CJ Walker. So in previous episodes, we're seeing her trying to, you know, fight and climb and, and try to build something. And now she's here and how is she going to maintain it? And how she's going to, how she's going to extend it? Um, so, yeah, I appreciated that. Yeah. So now that we know how, you know, just kind of an overall sense of what we think about the episode, let's get into a few details 
And as we've done with um, previous episodes, we've put a spotlight on each of the individuals um, or each of the main characters, because of course this is um, it's kind of a biopic. I guess it's inspired by a true story. Um, and so we already talked about Madam C.J. Walker. We talked about um, Annie Malone, who's depicted as Addie Monroe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also talked about uh, C.J. Walker. Uh, so today we're going to put a spotlight on Lilia Walker, a.k.a. a Lilia Walker, a.k.a. Lilia McWilliams. <laughs> All these people with their aliases. Um, but yes, yeah, she was actually born Lilia McWilliams. Um, I think it was apparent that C.J. Walker was not her actual, her birth father. Um, although he was, he definitely was a father figure. Uh, so she was born on June 6th, June 6th, 1885 in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Um, let's see. Her father, I think we mentioned this in a previous episode, um, her father passed away. Um, and so uh, Sarah Breedlove was left um, with her daughter, her young daughter. Um, at a very young age, she had her daughter, uh, either late teens or early 20s. She was really young. Um, and then she moved out and met C.J. Walker, who helped her uh, raise her. Um, so let's see. Uh, in 1913, um, it says that Alilia Walker um, adopted a teenager named Fairy Mae Bryant and then relocated to Harlem. So in the film, it shows that Lilia went to Harlem, and then that's how they met Fairy Mae. Mm. Uh, but apparently, in real life, she may have met her and then brought her to Harlem. Um, I, that's probably just a minor thing, but, you know. Uh, we also, so in the film, she's depicted as being kind of, you know, frivolous and, and just kind of, li- you know, living life by the beat of her own drum and not necessarily being about business. Um, and that's kind of how it was reported. Um, she's often reported as being frivolous, less civic minded compared to her mother. Um, but she, maybe that's how she was at first, but she became a patron of the arts and she helped, um, the Harlem Renaissance by building a central location. Um, you know, uh, so the, the, um, the townhomes that, that we saw in the film, those were known as, um, it became known as the Dark, dark Tower, mm-hmm. um, which became like a, a, a secret, well, maybe not so secret, but just kind of a private membership club mm-hmm. uh, for people, for artists to gather, particularly black artists to gather and network and, and create. Um, you know, and it wasn't actually until reading about her story that I, I uh, gained a greater appreciation for people who may not have necessarily been uh, associated with, you know, being creative themselves. They're not necessarily artists themselves, but they support the arts and how important that is, how important that support is yeah. and creating space for art is. Yeah. Um, so um, 
after Sarah and Lilia moved uh, to an estate in the Hudson Valley, Lilia remodeled two adjacent townhomes in Harlem. And then the basement level became known as the Lilia College of Beauty Culture. Um, and then the first level became known as the Walker Hair Parlor. And then there were a second, a third, and fourth floors. That was her living quarters and her, you know, where she entertained people. Um, so first of all, that's just amazing that she was able to buy a whole building. Right, right. <laughs> And have all this business and entertainment and this actual living going on. Um, again, this is late 1900s, sorry, late, late 1910s, early 1920s. And to have that much money and to be a black woman, mm-hmm. astounding. Um, a few years later, she moved into another town home and her former living quarters became the Walker Studio. And then she rented that out for private parties and meetings and events. Um, and according to, this is the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker, so the great-granddaughter of Lilia, um, a Lilia bundle. She is quoted as saying, large numbers of African-Americans were starting to move to Harlem, but very few owned property. For them to actually purchase a building and a home there was unusual. And by opening this double townhouse designed by Bertner, Woodson Candy, one of the first practicing African-American artists, uh, architects, um, they were making a statement about their prominence and affluence in Harlem. Mm. And that's, that's a pretty big statement. Yeah. That would be a statement today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes on to say that in 1927, she remodeled a portion of her Walker studio and called it, quote, the Dark Tower, a private membership club. Uh, she often threw lavish parties, to connect musicians, actors, writers, publishers, intellectuals, and civil rights leaders. Um, and she helped to build a community for the black intelligentsia of the day. Wow. Langston Hughes dubbed her the joy goddess of Harlem's 1920s. And upon her death in August uh, 17, 1931, he declared it the end of the gay times of the new Negro era in Harlem. Mm. It's quite a statement. Wow. Um, it is said that more than 11,000 people visited the funeral home upon her death to pay their respects, and a 1,000 people attended her invitation-only funeral. That, uh, I can't even fathom that number. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 11,000. I mean, that's a whole... That's, that's a city. Whole city. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, she, she's left a legacy that her mother wanted her to say she did. It's a job well done. She did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, yeah, she was, she left two legacies because she was able to maintain her mother's company, but she also built her own, yeah. um, you know, especially again with, with her relationship with the, with the uh, black intelligentsia and the, and the black uh, creative uh, community. Um, and upon her death, Langston Hughes wrote a poem in her honor, and I'm going to quickly recite it. She did not die at home in her own bed at night. She died where laughter was and music and gave delight. She died as she had lived with no wearing pain, binding her to life like a hateful chain. So all who love laughter and joy and light 
Let your prayers be as roses for this queen of the night. Let your prayers be as roses and your songs be as sun to kiss the last road of this lowly, of this lovely one. For now, all tomorrow, and eternity's great years, she shall live in her laughter and not need our tears. Mm, yes, Langston. Beautiful, beautiful poem. So yes, she meant a lot to her community, and I'm grateful that this film, although you know it's about Madam C.J. Walker, we're learning so much about uh, Lilia Walker, or just even the existence of her. She was clearly a well-known figure of her time, but you know, it's been some years since her death, and uh, a lot of people. Um, either forgot about her or just didn't know. I certainly did not know who she was until I saw this film. So I'm grateful that um, we're getting that introduction. Thank you, yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Now, uh, there's something else that we need to talk about that we've been, you know, kind of circling around in uh, parts one through three. And this is about Lilia's sexuality. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of controversy, as there's been controversy around, you know, this entire mini miniseries about the historical accuracies that's been depicted. Um, and this is one, it's like controversy, and then there's controversy around the controversy. So it's a little, little complicated. So according to what I was able to find, uh, Lilia Walker was married and divorced three times to three different men. Mm. Um, which is, I think that's actually similar to Madam C.J. Walker. Yeah. I think she was yeah, married to three different wow. men as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, in this film, of course, they only depict her being married to one man um, right. and then divorced. Um, but it also shows her either being bisexual or possibly a lesbian and her you know, but marrying this, this husband as, you know, just cover is trying to survive. This, this is still a very um, homophobic society, of course. So it, it would make sense that she would, you know, choose to marry a man. Um, but yeah, so it's either she is bisexual or maybe she is a lesbian. Um, her grand, her great granddaughter, Alilia Bundles, again, says that there's not actually any definitive evidence that she was bisexual or a lesbian. Um, so that's where the controversy comes. This is a lot of this is just kind of implied or people kind of piecing things together. There's nothing that definitively states um, that this was her um, self-identified, you know, sexual orientation. Um, however, she goes on to say that she found evidence that she may have dated a longtime female friend after her third marriage. Um, people who, who identify as homosexual, because again, it's, you know, it's, it's dangerous to be a, a homosexual person. Right, it's dangerous right. to, to, to live that lifestyle um, out loud and in public. And so when you go back to history and you go back to, letters or, or reports or whatever, it's not necessarily going to be explicitly stated. You have to figure out how to read between the lines. Um, 
so that's kind of what makes it a little confusing. Um, the other part is that, again, she provided space for the creative community, um, creative black community. Um, and she hosted a lot of parties. It happened to be for a lot of members of the queer community. Uh, mm-hmm. She provided that safe space mm-hmm. uh, where they felt comfortable kind of being out um, in, in a private setting. Uh, and so because she was so comfortable with the queer community, people began to think that she herself may have been queer. Um, so it's a lot of inferences. Um, the controversy is this kind of like, you know, it, it's interesting to see some people say, no, she was, she was a lesbian. She was, you know, she was a member of the LGBT community. She was proud. She was this, she was that. And then there's other people saying, well, I, I don't think she was. There's no proof. She was a straight woman. She just, she just was an ally. And then there's the other question of why does it matter? Right. So, you know, I don't know what the real reason, I mean, what the real answer is. I think it's apparent that she at least was a supporter of the queer community. She may have identified as queer herself. Um, we may never truly know. But I think that this is a great opportunity to, at the very least, um, get that representation out um, so that people know that um, the queer community existed back then. Um, And even further back, of course, you know, some people think that (laughs) homosexuality is some type of new thing. Um, But of course it's not. And, And there are people who identified as homosexual and they maybe have been in the closet, but they were able to create community for themselves in, in very creative ways. Uh, and so at the very least, I appreciate that there, that this film um, attempts to um, state claim when it comes to black women mm-hmm. and their, and their sexual identities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's happening across um, entertainment platforms and the entertainment industry in general. I think, um, you know, Cynthia just mentioned Pose. You had the L word come out earlier. Um, and, and then the new L word is recently out. It's because our society is ever evolving um the entertainment industry has taken it upon themselves to cast um those to trans actors gay actors that write about gay characters um i've watched a a pose a virtual platform that they were on and the post cast and crew they were talking and saying they were this is the first show of their kind ever um and you have um trans writers writing for that specific Mm -hmm. show so I'm I'm really I think it's wonderful that whether we have evidence or not, I think it's wonderful that Netflix thought it not robbery to shed light on common issues that we have within our community. You know what? I'm glad you mentioned that. It does add to the different dimensions of our of Black women, right? Is we don't just have one story. So um, the strong Black women versus the carefree Black women, I mean... 
it doesn't even have to be versus right. There's like there's there's a full on spectrum of of black women and black womanhood, right? And especially with regards to our sexuality. So back then in the early 1900s, it may have not been the language to describe or identify Lelia's sexuality, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, I'm not a linguist, <laughs> so I don't know the term. Um, like fluid, I'm sure fluid wasn't around then, but today we may describe Lily as fluid. Yeah. Um, um, queer and gay may be old enough to have been around during that time. Again, I'm not a linguist. Um, but um, to, because we don't have quote-unquote evidence, whether it's letters, photographs, um, that kind of like primary source evidence, then perhaps we can say she was at least fluid or an ally, like you've mentioned. But I'm just curious, like, would she, would her sexuality be in question, like, if she had kids? I mean, I think because she was married three times, maybe it was just easy for people back then to think that, like, oh, well, she's just, she's definitely, to take even her, I guess, inability to produce, biological children she did uh in some form adopt or take on fairy but you know um okay so i can see it being easy for society back then to just assume that with three marriages under her belt and no children and her being such a carefree woman going out or maybe hosting parties all times of day and night and hanging out with queer folks, she must be gay, right? So mm-hmm. would she, would her sexuality be questioned even today, even today, if she had at least one child? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be. <laughs> I, I think people yeah. are ultra nosy, like, and especially about sexuality. I think, I don't know why that is either, but in society, from then and now, um, and throughout, I, I guess throughout the decades, really, people are very nosy about who other people are sleeping with, <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but that it is happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I yes, on that level, but at the same time, I also, again, I appreciate. Because if this film was made even 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier, this part might not have even been explored. Mm. I, I don't think that we would have been in a, in a place in society where we would have felt comfortable seeing mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Um, especially with there being still some question marks around whether or not, you know, was she or wasn't she gay? I don't know. Um, and so it would have been enough for people to try to say, well, why are you calling her gay? She was a gay, she was just, you know, she's just different or whatever they would have tried to say to try to keep that label off of her. Um, and so I do appreciate on a certain level, I, it's not necessarily nosiness. I, it, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, uh, Dorsey. Um, but I also appreciate that, that, there is this desire for representation, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, again, so that, so that, that part is, is out there for the record too, for the record 
this woman may have explored female, you know, relationships and felt quite comfortable doing so. For the record, she, you know, uh, was very comfortable in in these communities and created safe spaces for them. And she was in a position to do so. And I'm sure that that being in her, um, having a certain social status and financial status allowed her to be, to, to move in ways that a lot of other women who were also uh, lesbian and a lot of black women who are also lesbian might not have been able to do uh, safely. Uh, so I do appreciate that. Yeah, I think. And I just, oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, also in our community, you know, we have a history of silence. Okay. Yeah. That's just that's what goes on in our house stays in our house. And so from that could spark people being inquisitive about what's going on, of course. But I think now what's happening is that people are tired of being silent. Um mm-hmm. and and being silenced and they're just speaking out courageously despite of what could happen. And so I think these network execs are trying to keep up with the times. I also think a lot of them are gay themselves, uh, mm-hmm. you know. So, mm-hmm. like, for instance, Ryan Murphy, who um, is executive producer of Pose, um, they, they're starting to, the executive producers are starting to tell their stories as well. So I think I'm I'm here for it all because I feel like, once we begin to talk about things and break silences, then we can heal ourselves. And so um, I think that this is important. And we can't forget about Lena Waithe as well. Lena Waithe is right. out here right. fighting the good fight. You know, she's got her show 20s on BET, um, which is showing uh, a variety of, of black women, um, you know, black women who identify as lesbian, black women who uh, present themselves in um, more masculine uh, form, um, which again, 10, 20 years ago, I don't think we would have seen a show like that or seen characters like that on BET. And if we did, it would have been for comedic effect. Yeah. Um, and Cynthia, um, she said, Lena Waithe herself said that season three of The Shot is going to be the gayest. So you got to catch up. <laughs> I think I read that. And yeah. I, I agree. I think I read that. Yeah. 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 But this also reminds me, I just forgot, I was also binging and finished about three weeks ago. My boyfriend put me on to Black Lightning, which mm. is the superhero TV show on yeah. CW. And I'm, once again, I'm late. I'm just now catching up, right? But this is an example of, it's a superhero story, but it crosses, it reasons so much of what's going on in our community with Black Lives Matter and um, the protests. And, you know, marginalized communities, but in particular, I think, um, I forget, Craig Williams, the, the actor who plays um, Black Lightning, the main superhero character, he has a family um, with two, two daughters, and both of the daughters inherited his powers, but one of them, the one who plays Anissa, the older daughter, so she's a med student, but she's also a lesbian, and they... They, they t- tell her story so beautifully. I mean, they take her through several relationships, and um, but they take the time to, like, develop it. So I do appreciate that, like, 
they don't rush it. They don't jump the gun. They kind of like give you sprinkles of it. I feel realistically, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but, um, yeah, that's also, um, and this has been on the CW, like apparently all the time. I say apparently because like I said, I'm just now streaming it. So I'm late to the party, excuse me. Um, but <laughs> you know, that's also important to have like that representation, right? On the CW where you see two black women or black women as lead character kissing another woman. And she's like the daughter of, um, black lightning in, in his real author. He plays like a principal and he, his wife or his uh, separate wife plays a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. So you have um, these two daughters, one of them who's also starting to be a doctor, who comes from like, you know, middle class, I guess middle upper class family who's um, a lesbian. And it's, it's important to show, I guess, in self-made, right? Um, Lelia's character or Lelia is, she is, she's, you know, um, I guess a wealthy, a wealthy person, right? A wealthy character, but she also shares that wealth. And again, in, a, in a, being able to afford the space, the safe space, she shares that space, right? Yeah. So it's important to not to use your platform and share that space and make right. help make other queer folk comfortable. And then in this example, which is you know maybe not so realistic because of a superhero show, um, it still just explores. Um, black lesbian relationships and in a, in a beautiful way. I think Anissa ends up marrying her girlfriend, um, at least that last season I watched, or proposing to her. Um, and then her sister's really supportive, her family's supportive, right? So that's important too, to show, to show that full on like dynamic. Yeah, I'm glad you guys mentioned uh, the black um, LGBTQIA stories because um, I want to say that there were stories there coming out on networks like the L Word that were that were white washed. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. nobody was really telling the the it from the lens of the of black people. And so yes, though like Lena Waithe and Black Lightning, like the this is a very important self-made, very important because our lens as a black community is different and it needs to be shared. Absolutely. And again, you know, <clears throat> um one of the things that I noticed um especially with this with part four is Lilia's uh, maturity um, very different from how we were first introduced to her, where she just kind of, you know, as Sarah and CJ were getting ready to move to um, Indianapolis, uh, Lilia's running up like, Hey mama, I'm married. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> Who is this? And they're coming where? Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it was just the move of a child. Yeah. Um, and then even their their marriage was was a bit childish. The way that they treated each other, the way that they regarded each other, you know, John was able to <laughs> John was able to steal information <laughs> from this gal's mama, mm-hmm. and she wasn't paying attention because she was hanging out with Esther. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and and exploring that relationship, and. Uh, you know, and, and, and possibly harmed her mother's business because she just was not, she wasn't paying attention to what was going on around her. Now, you know, on the other hand, it was great that she was able to kind of explore um, what her sexuality was 
at that time. Um, but then, you know, as we see in, in part four, we see the introduction of peaches and how that relationship is a lot more, uh, you know, more serious and, and more mature. And mm-hmm. peaches is kind of pushing her like, listen, uh, I want to be with you and I want us to be together where we can be accepted and we can live our lives on our own terms. Let's go to Paris. And Lily is down, but Lily is also like, uh, this ain't the right time. I don't know. And Peaches is like, this train is moving with or without you. Yeah. You know, I'm going to need you to to be an adult and, and make a decision. Um, and so I, you know, and it, you know, forced uh, Lilia to kind of be more proactive in her life. And. Uh, we got to see how difficult that is because, of course, it's very easy for somebody to say, just tell your mama you ain't going, you know, let's just go to Paris or let's just do our thing. But um, for Lilia, it's, it's deeper than that. It's, it's her relationship with her mother. They've been a team for so long. And, you know, it's this business and there's so much pressure at stake. She saw her, her, how hard her mother worked to build her business and she didn't want to do anything to jeopardize that. Um you know, but it's also the fact that, you know, again, this is the 1920s and it's still very difficult to be a black woman in a relationship with a woman. You know, I'm sure it was probably, it may have been easier in Paris or maybe they thought it was easier in Paris. Who knows if it actually was? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so think, this I was think a time. Was. Yeah, go ahead. This was a time where you couldn't even, I think you even needed an escort, right, on campus, right? Or if you want to get off campus on a university. So it, it, may, it may have not been safe in any capacity, black anywhere. It wasn't just safe to be black and carefree anywhere, at least in the state. So um, it may have just been a, a large leap for her to imagine, you know, going to Europe. But, um, I interrupted you, Cynthia D. Continue. Oh, no problem. A lot of the um, artists from the Harlem Renaissance were leaving America and moving to Paris during that time. It it, it wasn't far-fetched for um, people to relocate to Paris because they thought it provided them a better opportunity to be black. And, you know, being mm-hmm. black in Paris was a thing. But they faced the mm-hmm. same ridicule and, um, you know, uh, segregation that they fa- they face here in America, but I think the killing, um, the lynching, and things like that wasn't. That's what they were escaping when they went to Paris, mm. and a lot mm-hmm. of the gay artists specifically, like James Baldwin, like left. Mm-hmm. And I imagine from the history that Portia shared, I imagine that she was friends. She was friends with Langston. She was friends with James Baldwin. And they probably talked about the life in Paris and she wanted to have that freedom. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I appreciated, um, you know, just kind of showing the arc of a black woman through her sexuality and through her own acceptance of her sexuality, um, you know, again, with Peaches kind of pushing her to be, um, you know, to just kind of take a stand for herself uh, when she had that confrontation with, with Sarah, you know, Sarah kind of walked in on them. First of all, I thought it was a restaurant. And then I realized, I think that was their 
property. Like that was <laughs> that was their their restaurant. I guess you know their own private uh, dining area. Oh, and you Sarah think so? Watson. You think I so? think so? Because oh. I'm just like, why? Why would Sarah? First of all, why is it empty? Second of all, why would Sarah just happen to be in the same restaurant as them? I think that was. I think that was there. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I was just like, maybe that's maybe that's I don't know. But anyway, neither here nor there. Um, but you know, she was in that embrace with Peaches. And then Sarah walks in on them and she's like, what are you doing? And she was just kind of like, I, you know, I got to be myself. I don't want to get married. I don't want to have kids. I don't want to settle down. I don't want to be constrained by your rules. Um, you know, I'm, I, I want to be happy the way that I want to be happy. Um, and then that's when Sarah kind of laid it out there. Because up until that point, she was trying to hide her diagnosis. At the beginning of the episode, we see Sarah faint. And then she was diagnosed with, I think, a kidney disease or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was, again, this is the 1920s. So, you know, medicine has advanced a lot since then. But back then, you know, it was a lot of bed rest. You got to take a year off, uh, eat fruits and vegetables. No, a vegetarian diet. She was she was prescribed a vegetarian diet. Um, you know, if it was the twenty twenties, it'd probably be a bunch of medicine and and uh, radiation and things like that. Um, but yeah, so she was telling her, "I'm sick and I'm dying, and I need you to take over the business. And part of taking over the business is to adopt a certain image and." You know, you cannot be in a relationship with a woman if you are going to carry on this legacy that I've, you know, helped build. Um, you're going to have to be with a man. And at first, Lillian was, she was like, okay, I get it. I understand and I'll do what I need to do. Um, but it was also really uh, interesting to, to see um towards the end where Lilia was talking to this gentleman that Sarah had set her up with and Lilia just seemed so bad and bored, frankly, with this man. (laughs) And Sarah was just like, you know what? I can't, (laughs) I'm not going to put this on you. You were right. You know, I want you to be happy. I want you to live your life. Um, you know, however that might, that may be, however different that may be for, uh, than what I, what my dreams were for you. Um, but I, you know, I'd rather that than for you to be unhappy. For a long time in the last year, we've also wondered whether Oprah was gay because she's a powerful woman yeah, who, yeah. you know, who commands and does what she wants, but I'll make it as well. Right. So, I mean, like we mentioned before, we just hope that these stories being at the forefront of, of Netflix or Hulu or network television just increase that dimension and give us that space. Yeah, <laughs> um, yep. So that, that's the most recent memory I can think of also of a, of a, of a current and living um, self-made millionaire whose sexuality has been questioned, continues to be questioned. Oprah Winfrey does not have any children, but she certainly um, adopted, quote unquote, um, children and 
young girls in schools in South Africa. So that's how she decided to create a legacy also for herself amongst one of many things, right? Um, but even with her, I guess, non-legally binding partnership with Stedman, um, a black man who's also of means, um, her sexuality continues to be questioned and discussed. So, Yeah, for quite some time now, I've been thinking about legacy and what that means. And in this body of work, it was nice to see that legacy is what you want it to be. It can be redefined. It doesn't have to be condensed into you um, bearing children from your womb and passing down the legacy that way. It could be in service. It could be in adoption. It could be um, friends and family, you know, Um And so it was nice to see that in a, you know, decade where bearing women, bearing children was the norm and was almost presented to her as a have to. Um, Mm. So it was I was really um, happy to see that as I am in 2020 deciding like, oh, what do I want my legacy to be? I don't have any children yet. Um, And of course, you think about that, right? You're almost going to be 40. You don't have any kids yet. Like that's that's a Mm -hmm. thing I think all women think about. But it's not a have to. And we you can be okay with that. We can still build our empires and be okay with that. We choose what we want our legacy to be. Mm-hmm. Well said, Maya. Well said. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I appreciate um, what you said about that because, yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of times, people talk about uh, legacy as if it's it's uh, you know something that that has to be passed down through your family, and it's in the work that it can be in the work that you do and the lives that you touch that aren't related to you. And you know, I thought. One, again, one of the things that jumped out at me for this particular episode was, was the whole legacy piece. Um, so, you know, even with the conversations that she was having with Lilia about legacy, uh, but then having Fairy Mae come into their lives and, you know, the possibility of her being able to help them carry it forward. Um, and here we are today with a Lilia Bundles writing the biography that became the source for, or the inspiration for this, this mini series. She's, she's the descendant of Fairy Mae, who was adopted into, into the family. Um, and, and there's no way that they could have, you know, been able to see that far into the future, but it's, it is interesting how you're able to, um, you know, even even family that that might not be traditional family, quote unquote, um, mm-hmm. still being able to carry on your legacy and your history with them, and of course through uh, the Walker was it Walker Manufacturing Company, um, mm-hmm. you know her company and how at the very end they showed the employees talk about how their lives were changed because of fair breed love and you know. I I worked for her company for X number of decades or I did this or I did that or I went to school because of her or, you know, even the last woman that spoke, it it was a really uh, cool touch where they had the women dress 
and, and their hair styled in the style of the decade that they represented or the years they represented. Mm. So the final woman was looked like she was in the seventies with her Afro, um, and her, uh, and her suit. And she was saying, you know, I, I sold products, uh, for the Walker company for X number of years, which is like, wow, I I didn't really think about the fact that, uh, she still, uh, you know, the Walker company was still selling products into the seventies. Um, you know, that's, that's a long journey. And when you think about it, the products are for black women. She has selling black hair care products for women. I guess men could, could also use it too, but it's black hair care products. Um, you know, and to, if you believe the hype, people always say, oh, well, you know, you can only do so much if you're just going to market to black people and that's limiting and blah, blah, blah. But it's amazing to remember that this was the first self-made female millionaire yeah. in the United States because she sold to black people. She made her money off of black people. She became a millionaire because mm. of black people. That's huge. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that that legacy will never go away. Um, you know, she even gained some extra legacy because I think I told you this uh, before, Cynthia D. I thought, I think I thought she invented the hot comb. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think I'm the only one that thought that. <laughs> yeah. But her, her name became synonymous with the hot comb. And it turns out she did not invent that. Um, although I'm sure the hot comb was used frequently with her products. To the right. point that people probably thought she made it, but right. um, but yeah, and you know, it's interesting to even think about how her legacy uh, continues to this day. And Lully, you know, tying in Oprah Winfrey, I I didn't even make that connection until you just said it, and how mm-hmm. she she is a very obvious comparison. Um, you know, both both uh, Madam C J Walker and Lilia Walker. Um, the comparisons between them and, and Oprah Winfrey, and she's kind of like the modern day, yeah. even though she's not necessarily selling a product, but she has an empire. Um, mm-hmm. She's the first, is she the first self-made billionaire? Female billionaire or something? Oh, no. Let's Google. We can look that up. <laughs> That's for sure. I mean, she's not a hundred year or thousand year that's for sure right this <laughs> <laughs> upwards currency is is definitely in the million billions yeah yeah, yeah. she uh, is she is in um 2003 oprah became the first black female billionaire Ooh. there it is but that's just again any powerful single woman in sexuality who is going to be questioned or speculated about. Um, and it doesn't have to be just media, hair care. Um, but hopefully, hopefully moving forward, that will, shouldn't be an, an issue because it's, it's a choice, right? It's a choice. Getting married is a choice. Having a child is a choice, right? And having a career is a choice. Um, none of them have to have any implications about actuality. Yeah. Because that's who we are. So the other thing that kind of jumped out to me, and uh, Lily, I think you kind of you mentioned this a little earlier, 
um, the question of um, like strong black woman versus carefree black woman. Um, And you're right. It doesn't have to be an either or kind of situation, but um, you know, for the longest, it's always been strong black woman, strong black woman. That's, that's Mm -hmm. the image that black women are supposed to aspire to, or that's the label that is placed on black women. Um, that you have to be this, you know, this, uh, unbreakable, uh, can handle anything. Uh, you, you take care of everything. Nobody, nobody has to help you. Nobody has to save you. Mm-hmm. Nobody has to look out for you. You are a strong, independent black woman. Um, and that's in a lot of ways how, how Sarah kind of had to be, whether or not she was that. It's a different story, but she had to, if she was going to realize her dream of, you know, making this big uh, company grow and creating these products, um, she had to be this quote unquote strong black woman um, and assert herself in ways that were uh, almost unheard of um, during her time um, as a black person, as a woman and as a black woman. Um you know, and we kind of talked a little bit in a previous episode how that that may have even contributed to the demise of her relationship. Certainly, CJ um, had a lot to do with it too. But um, you know, just the fact that she asserted herself in such a strong way that kind of bumped up against CJ's um, you know sense of self. And, and how he related to his own masculinity um, and how others regarded them as well. You know, in, in, uh, there was a scene where she came, where Sarah came to CJ's hotel room um, mm-hmm. and she confronted him about uh, telling the secret, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, spilling the beans to <laughs> Addie that she may or may not have uh, borrowed a formula. Who knows? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and CJ was like, you know, I, you, you don't, you could not begin to understand how difficult it was to be known as Mister Madam CJ Walker, mm. even though she carried his name. Yeah. He still was Mister Madam, and you know, and and he said, "You broke me." And, you know, and whether that was her or just her existence, her, her, uh, her bossness, um, uh, if you will, broke him. He could not handle it. Um, so you kind of look at that and then you look at Lilia, who was, you know, what we now know as the quote unquote carefree black woman who was kind of like, you know, I'm going to do what I do and I'm not going to be bound by certain rules and I'm going to, you know, um, make my decisions based off of uh, what feels good and what brings me joy. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to withstand all the stuff that you think that I should withstand. I'm not going to be strong for you and everybody else. I'm going to be strong for me, but you know, if this hurts me, I feel carefree enough to go a different way. Um, and you're just not going to, you're not going to uh, keep me within whatever boundaries you think I should be in. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I did appreciate just kind of that, that push and pull. And, you know, even with Lilia, um, yeah, almost the radicalness of being a carefree black woman back then. Mm. Cause there's still just a few years or a few decades post slavery. And to have all this money and all this privilege and all this power. And Lilia is, you know, kind of acting like a princess in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just, she's just out here. She's just riding bikes and she's, you know, having friends and, <laughs> and she's just, you know, buying up property and bringing her, bringing her queer friends around and they're going to have some parties and, you know, whatever. And who's going to tell her no? Right. Right. So, it was, it was kind of cool to, to just kind of see that, but then also uh, a little um, uh, a heartbreaking might be too strong, but I don't know, just, just also a, a reminder of just the challenges of that. And you can't, uh, the limitations of being a carefree black woman, even at that time, you can only go for so long before reality hits you and, you know, you still have to deal with the constraints that are placed on you. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how you, you know, I didn't even think about it as, as her carefreeness until you mentioned it. It's almost bat-like. I don't know if you remember the trope bat, black um, American princess. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. And not, I mean, but they didn't go without struggle, right? I'm sure... Lelia remembers how hard it was, you know, for her mom to pull herself up and for them to leave that first marriage. I don't think, you know, she, she probably still remembered a lot of that. But um, like you said, she was, you know, having parties and socializing and, and just decided maybe it was a, a conscious decision, right, that she was going to be happy in this way, no matter mm-hmm. what's going on. And there were lynchings and there were uh, protest movements. And look, women didn't even have the right to vote um, pre- before 1920, before they moved on to New York. Right. Mm-hmm. So to just to still decide I am going to live my best life as we say it right now um, during that time is, is very revolutionary, Right. Um, I think it was Audrey Lorde who said something about self-care being like you know, revolution, a revolutionary act. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I just, uh, her being carefree um, is very enviable. Like, I envy it <laughs> a little bit because, again, when you take into context the times, what was going on at that time, I mean, it's, it's bold, it's courageous. I envy it because even though we have more freedom today for her to make that decision, then it's just like, wow, you just, you're just living your life, right? What excuse do I have to, to not be happy or to not travel or to not have my fabulous parties or to not, um, not um, be creative um, in whatever company, in the, in the company I work for? Because she was, remember she was bringing in like 
you know, people who are playing the flute in her mom's camp marketing campaign. At some point, you know, as you mentioned, Portia, she did kind of grow up, you know. And so she was just, she was probably inspired by a lot of the people she invited over to the house or the Dark Towers um, along those lines. So, but imagine how much more free she would have been had she gone to Paris. Oh my God. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. That is, yeah, that is a fascinating thought. I, you know, if I had more time, I'd try to do a little more digging. I wonder if she ever made it there. Maybe mm-hmm. not at that particular time, but hopefully she she at least visited before she passed away. Strong black woman. Oof, um, I guess I, I'm going to call it a prison of sorts or contra. It just it can be debilitating, right? Um, trying to take care of the community and your career and your family and not ask for help. It can really be a lot. Um, so I definitely, I, I definitely, I can identify with her in that way, but her body shut down at some point. Your body will tell you when it is too much and when, and you have to start listening to your body when that happens. There was some carefreeness, I guess, in a way with Sarah, um, maybe with some of her moves, like I'm just thinking about the scene where she talks to Ransom and he tells her, you know, they want to do the convention and the, the location that they were looking at fell through. And then she was like, well, we'll do it at my, at my estate. <laughs> I was going to say my house, but it's not a house. It's an estate. <laughs> and she was like, I got the, you know, I have enough property. I have the space. Let's do it. And Ransom was like, uh, you sure? Because, I mean, there might be some people that are going to look at you, you know, with the side eye. And, you know, you just moved in and you're the only black person in the neighborhood. Like, maybe you don't want this attention. And Sarah was just like, no, we're going to do it. (laughs) And I was like, yes, that's that's a strong black woman, but that's also a carefree black black woman in there too. That's just like, no, I'm I'm going to use what I have. And what I happen to have is an estate. And we're going to bring these black women to my estate. And these white folks will deal. (laughs) 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 It's just like, all right. Cynthia D, do you have any, like, what, in terms of Sarah's strong black woman um, attribute or characteristic, do you think that that's still something that, like, not hold us back, but today, but um, that we deal with today? I'm a strong black and I remember it being like a big phrase in the 80s, 90s. So I personally, I just think, I think it's okay to be strong. I think it's okay to be carefree. I think we need to just start looking at black women as uh, multidimensional and we have different ways of feeling and moving and, and maneuvering throughout the world on any given day we might be strong on another day. We might be weak and that's okay. You know, I think it's okay. And I think we, it starts with us recognizing like it's okay today. I am not 
um, the strongest woman and I cannot walk into the office today because I am distraught about the millions of black men and women across the world who are in trauma we are all facing Mm. some sort of trauma and I think if we can speak that and and you know manifest that within then we don't need outside influences um to tell us when to be strong or that or label us as strong because we we are strong Mm -hmm. we are there's no way of you know denying that but we also are not we also have the room to be other things so I think it just I think personally we have to start doing that within and not taking holding true to the label because we fall guilty of that too yeah even the strongest of us these days I mean the the downfall to that is um I can think of the example with Serena Williams when she had her baby and um, with black mortality um, or black maternal health, excuse me, being um, a topic of discussion all the right now, um, there is also this tendency for healthcare professionals to not believe us when we say that something is wrong, right? Right. When we are in pain because they're so used to seeing us be strong or not cry, or not being in pain, right. that when when we do say something, they just think, oh, well, it's not serious. And in the case of um, Serena, um, you know, she felt that something was wrong while she was having her child, and um, the healthcare professionals didn't heed her seriously, and she ended up suffering a little bit, you know, more than... I guess then she she should have, um, but hers is not. It's not the only case. The reason why Black maternal health isn't is a serious issue right now. It's just there are too many cases of you know Black women just not being believed and being taken care of. Right again, this is just another episode on, or an attack on the Black body. Right, right. Um, the Black body just simply cannot exist either in its strong form or in its carefree form. And even in its weakest form, we don't get taken care of and we're not protected. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, just building off of that and kind of um, piggybacking off of something that Dorsey said, um, I recently uh, was going through Facebook. I found this comment and they were talking about, um, a conversation, this, this woman uh, had a conversation with her son and she was just kind of saying, uh, very similar to Lily, what you were saying with the whole issue of um, medical professionals, um, or what the, the health disparities that we see in medicine um, where health professionals may not um, take black pain seriously and may not believe uh, black people when they say that they're in pain. And her son said, you know, that's kind of similar to the way that you deal with me. Because um, mm. when I tell you that I'm sick or when I tell you that I'm hurt and then you see mm-hmm. me do something else, then you turn around and say, oh, well, if you can do that, then you can go to school. If you could do that, then you can do this thing that I asked you to do. Um, mm. And so, you know, and she really felt convicted and she was like, you know, she had a conversation with him and realized that, you know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, we, we all kind of, uh, 
um, internalize these messages um, and we project it back on each other. We police each other. Mm-hmm. So in the same ways in which, you know, we're being told that our pain isn't real, we tell each other that our pain isn't real either. Mm-hmm. And so we suck it up and, you know, you're not tired or, you know, stop crying or, you know, and, and, and a lot of times we think of this in the way that we talk to, to young boys and they become men, but we don't think about how we do that to each other as women Mm-hmm. And what we do to little girls and the messages that we send, again, uh, you know, a lot of things kind of go back to this strong black woman, uh, you know, archetype. Yeah, trope. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure, there can be some, some, some truth in that or sure, there can be some benefits to that. Um, you know, we, we definitely use that to our benefit, but then we also have to acknowledge where that can be detrimental and how we might be hurting ourselves by, um, by believing the stereotype that we can endure all these things and that we can, you know, we're superhuman. You know, we tell, we tell people we're not superhuman, but then we also, uh, buy into the hashtag black girl magic, Mm. which, you know, there's nothing wrong with black girl magic. I love the concept. Um, (laughs) but again, we have to also, think about it a little more critically at times too. How much of it are we taking on um, to, to convince ourselves that we're somehow more than human beings and that we can handle more than what everybody else can. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't, we don't deserve to do, we don't deserve that. And we definitely uh, don't need to do that to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I find it remarkable that, Serena was able in labor to communicate what was wrong to the doctor. And I think that is a lesson to all of us in that we, you know, back to, you know, my original point is like, we got to know what's going on with us, right? We got to know like today I'm not okay. And we got to be able to communicate it. We can't silence ourselves. Um, And because the world views us one way, we have to, and it's hard, right? We're going to have to actively, you know, go against that. Like today, I'm not well. And you got to say it. We can't be embarrassed. We can't be um, trying to maintain this this persona. We have to Mm -hmm. actively fight for ourselves because no one is fighting for us. No, exactly. and so mm-hmm. we, we got to do it ourselves and tell you absolutely both of you are absolutely right yeah I was um <laughs> uh, hopefully this is not uh too far away from our conversation but um just before we started I was flipping through again Facebook and I came across uh the TI uh, uh whatever reality show <sighs> TI and tiny reality show and um I don't watch the show, but I, I will catch a clip here and there. And this season, it seems like they're, they're talking a lot about the fallout from his comments about his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, he went on a podcast and started talking about some really private information about her body and um, her sexual activity um, or lack thereof. And She's a young woman. I, I don't know how old she is. She's got to be, if not late teens, early 20s. I think um, she just, I, I think she just turned 18. Like when okay. this happened, I think she had just graduated from high school. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. So, so very young woman. And, uh, and it had been a while since I'd seen the show. So I came back and watched the clip and I was just like, oh my gosh, Deja is a grown woman. Like she just, you know, <laughs> she, she did what kids do. She grew, she's growing up. And, um, but the clip that I saw was her, it, clearly she is a very private young lady and, uh, but she was able to articulate how upset she was, how disappointed she was, how disrespected she felt. Um, and she, you know, in her little, um, I don't know what you call it, testimonials or whatever, you know, she was talking about how she felt through that whole time. And then they showed clips of, you know, what was happening. Um, and she just, it was, it was silent. It was a silent treatment. She was giving her father. She wouldn't talk to him. And at first he thought he did. Yeah. At first he didn't think that he did anything wrong. And she was just like, I'm just, they, they had a family vacation in Mexico. And she was like, I'm just trying to make it through so that, you know, I can get out of here because I'm so uncomfortable. I really don't want to be around my father right now, blah, blah, blah. And then there was another clip where her mother talked to her father on his podcast because again, she, she stopped talking to him. He tried to reach out and she was just like, I'm not, I don't have nothing to say. And her mother went on her behalf and really spoke up for her and got him to understand what you did was a violation and what you did was nobody's business. And what goes on with her is not your business either. And you think that you're trying to get some information about her sexual activity, um, through some type of examination, that's not even like that's, that's not even right. <laughs> that's not, not like, but that's not even right. Like yes. you think that that a broken hymen means that somebody had sex. Yes. That's not the case. Yes. <clears throat> and so apparently, you know, he asked her if she had sex, and she said no. And then he went and got her examined, and the exam came back, and you know, in the contrary to his, you know, in his mind, and he felt like she lied to him. She was just like, you know, so on top of all that, you also are calling your daughter a liar. So uh, she feels like she can't trust you. You violated her and you spread it out all over the world. Not you only that, that what was happening to her on social media post him doing that where yes. men were like, mm. I can break your hymen. Like literally mm, uh, yeah. the, what you were trying to avoid, you opened up Pandora's right. box. Like no right. consideration. Yeah. All he was thinking about was his, was his stupid self. And it was just, yeah. I was mm-hmm. so infuriated. So infuriated. And that's, that's what she spoke to too. She was just like, I, I got so many comments from grown men. And she just kind of mm-hmm. went silent. And I was just like, girl, you done said a mouthful. But mm. I, I just, I was so proud of her for standing her ground. And yeah. I was really proud of her mother, too, for, for sticking up for her um, as well. And, you know, not backing down and not, not giving him an inch and say, oh, well, you know, it's okay. No, what you did was wrong and you need to learn and you need to do better. Yeah. And, uh, yes. Yes. you know, and, and it's just, it wasn't okay. It's never okay. And, and, and that's it. And I just, I really appreciated in that moment, going back to our conversation, I appreciated that, you know, it wasn't a situation where she was going to back down. It wasn't going to be a situation where she was going to be stoic and just be like, well, you know, that ain't nothing. That ain't whatever. No, you hurt me. You did damage. 
and you need to make this right. You need to apologize privately and publicly. Publicly. Mm-hmm. You need mm-hmm. to do right and make this so, and do it in a way that other people can learn too, because it's not okay for you to do to your daughter, but it's not okay for men to do to women. Right. Period. And so I, yeah, I, that was, <laughs> I've just been sitting with that all day. And I was just like, I'm really glad that she had her say. And I hope that she's able to continue to grow and be stronger, but also be strong in a way where she can, she can say, I'm hurt. You, you harmed me. Mm, and I expect, yeah. you know, better behavior. I expect something different. You don't get to have access to me and still hurt me. Mm. And, yeah. not, and not I feel hope- bad. After you, after you do, and not because I think that happens too, right? We feel I, I um recently was talking to one of my friends who was in an abusive relationship, and she literally said, "I feel bad letting him know that he abused me, like saying that to him." Mm-hmm. And I, it, it, it like gave me chills. We we as women, we are very protective over others. Like we, mm-hmm. we, this is it's like innate, but when it comes to ourselves, we feel like that that is selfish or that is, um, being, um, over the top. No, it, it's not. We have to, we have to reconcile with the fact that we are important too, and we need protection too, and we have to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you know, in the last clip that I saw, um, they had a little family gathering. They were all sitting at a table and Deja walks in and, you know, she greets her family members and, you know, she, she hugged her father, but it was kind of like a little half hug. And in her little testimonial, she was saying, you know, I'm glad that, you know, we all can get together and we're trying to put it, put this behind us, but you know, there's still work to be done. And I was yeah. like, you, you got that right. I'm glad. Yeah. You know, go on and, and greet your father, but also let him know. We ain't we ain't where we used to be. We we have to do some rebuilding, and so yes. you go you gonna take yes. this half hug. Yep. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. That is that is the one thing I I will I do admire about millennials or younger millennials is that there's a little bit more language to address certain things, particularly in black families, and and um, yeah, I, I'm glad she felt comfortable enough to take that on to um, say her piece, defend herself. And I hope she continues feeling comfortable going out in the world in such a way that she feels, you know, that she's confident in protecting herself and her own sexuality and that her dad would also protect her. Mm-hmm. Again, he pretty much, I mean, the I'm not a psychologist, but it's almost like an act, act of... Um, he kind of exploited her sexually, right? Or put her sexuality up for, I don't know, the world to discuss or out of his own selfishness and need and and machismo and needing to prove something and how much control he has over her sexuality. I mean, mean, that's almost um, an assault on its own for her probably, right? Yes, yes. And so, you know, It'll, it will take some work for him to repair that relationship and make her feel safe and secure. And that is 
that's his job as a parent first, not so much even a dad, make her feel safe, secure, and confident in her sexuality, no matter what she's done in her sex life or what she identifies with in any spectrum of her sexuality, he's now going to have to do this work (laughs) to educate himself and then be a support system for her. Right. And not using your children, not exploiting your children for your own personal career gains. Because like, oh, no. <laughs> no. why were you talking about her in the hello, first place? Hello, <laughs> hello. It was yeah. no reason. It's no reason for you to be talking about her. Like, <laughs> right. But um, in black families, yes, yeah, that um, you know, silencing. Cynthia D mentioned this earlier. There's a lot of silencing of these topics, whether it's sexuality or our pain, right? Mm-hmm. And we tend to. Um, come from our fathers as well as our our mothers. Um, I don't know, uh, like with the mother-daughter relationship in self-made, um, we have two examples. Orsha, um, do you want to touch on those a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the obvious uh, parental relationships we see uh, really stem from Sarah and Lilia. Uh, we see the progression of um, their relationship from, from one to two to three to four. And, you know, kind of related to what we were just talking about, um, you know, they, they had some, some challenges when it came to Lilia's sexuality. Um, you know, prior to them having that confrontation, um, uh, Sarah was aware that Lilia was, I guess maybe she kind of experienced explained it or justified in her mind is Lilia just being immature and she's just not, you know, she's just not where she needs to be yet or she's just having fun hanging out with um, with Esther uh, when they were still in Indianapolis. Um, no one knew that, that she and Esther were, were getting very close. Uh, they thought that they were just friends, although some people clocked it and, and I think somebody called Esther a little boy or something. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, yeah, Lilia, she was excited to go to New York. She was the one that, that initiated it um, when they had initially gone out to New York to try to pitch to, um, I forgot the name of the drugstores. Um, you know, they were trying to get their products in the drugstore. And um, at over dinner, the uh, owner's wife, I think, was saying, oh, yeah, y'all need to come to Harlem. This is where it's at. And people are free. And Lilia was like, really? <laughs> what do you say about Lila now? I need to go. Yeah. And, and she tried to convince Esther to come with her. And she, Esther was like, uh, and Lilia went anyway. And, um, you know, and, and became more of herself. There's no, there's no uh, wonder why we see, we start off part four with her being um, in a more mature place. It's almost like Lilia's home now. Um and, you know, and so Sarah, Sarah is seeing more of Lilia become more of herself. She's exploring yeah. uh, who she is as a woman and who she is um, in her sexuality. Um, and Sarah didn't, you know, she didn't like it. But then, uh, like, like we talked about earlier, Sarah had to kind of come to terms with that 
and realize that it's it's not about her. It's about it's about Lilia, and it's about them. You know, if Lilia's happy, then the legacy can continue. Not the yeah. not the other way around. It, like the legacy does not have to continue at the expense of Lilia and her own personal happiness. She can have both. Yeah. Um, you know, and we'll just have to redefine what what success means, what success looks like. Um, you know, so that was that was pretty interesting to see the progression of their uh, relationship, and really the only relationship that that survived the entire course of the four part series. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not even CJ. <laughs> Lasted right. and and it and it had a great start because at first you know we talked about this in earlier episodes. CJ was was really supportive. He was. Um, mm-hmm. Then yeah. he turned to a monster. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm telling you, it's that it's that per how you feel about yourself, you transferring it on other people. He right. he ha- he needed to figure out his marketing thing and did his own thing. He would have been proud of himself and be able to accept. Um, being prideful about his woman as well. Mm-hmm. So he never did that. He never really pursued his own talents, and it ate him alive. And he blamed it on her. Like, you broke me. She didn't break you. You broke you. <laughs> <laughs> you broke you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, and there's still some lingering feelings there. Because, I mean, you know, uh, Sarah didn't leave that night. She left the next morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she sure did. She sure did. She spent the night. You're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they talked and then they talked some more. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and CJ was like, you ain't got to leave. <laughs> Sarah was like, no, nah, I, I got to, I got to do some thinking. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what he said. That's exactly what she said. <laughs> but yeah, CJ, I think I would say that CJ actually did love Sarah and supported Sarah, but yeah, his his he had to do some internal work. Yep. And 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 that that brought out the demise that brought on the demise of their relationship or was or contributed to the demise of their relationship. Um his inability to do his work. Um, and then he was left with Dora the Explorer. <laughs> you know what? You know what? I don't know. I, I wonder now, even though we're, I know we're discussing about a daughter relationship. I wonder what kind of father he was because he, um, I, I wonder if he ended up having kids at all later because mm. again, he didn't, um, um, Fairy wasn't his daughter. Lilia wasn't his daughter. I wonder if later in going off with Dora, if he ended up having children. But at some point, maybe that was that was a part of his frustration. Maybe he was concerned about having a legacy as well. Even though, as Portia mentioned, his name is the brand, right? Right. But um, maybe in his loins, perhaps we're pining. Or an heir himself, or a part to be a, a, a biological part of this legacy. That could have been a source of his frustration, and he may not have had the language, as men often do not, to express yeah. that level yep. of frustration. Yep. Yeah. 
I I think there's something there. I you know, I think there's yeah. something there. Yeah, but Lelia, it, it is fascinating though. Lelia did end up adopting um, Fairy. I know they they mentioned that her family wasn't well well off. Fairy's family. Um, I guess she had had like a whole number of a bunch of siblings and mm-hmm. went well off. And so somehow Lydia scooped her up. Um, so um, um, I also try to imagine what that meeting was like the first time she met her and heard her story. But she seemed really sweet. Um, fairy that is. She seems yeah. really sweet and adorable. That actress and, is beautiful. Um, She's a beautiful yeah. girl. Yeah, I'm glad they chose a nice chocolate girl to yes, represent yes. in the movie. Um, she was just uh, endearing and seemed appreciative of just uh, being there, being taken in to the family. And apparently she went on to go to college at Spelman. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it seems like the way Sarah would have wanted. It seems in some ways that she was... Um, these things that Sarah would have wanted Lelia to be. Mm. Yeah. Um, yep. She ended up getting married, having kids. Yeah. Um, and her kids were the ones who ended up also taking, uh, taking on the legacy and pushing it forward. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, I just kind of going back to just the look. I, I too appreciate it. She was a nice little chocolate girl. Um, and then, you know, at the very end, uh, when you watch the credits, you see a picture of the actual fairy maid. And she had that long hair and she was brown skin. Because at first I was like, wow, this is why, I guess this was a choice. Why did you get this girl with all this long hair? But then, of course, you know, matching who she was, she did have long hair. Um, and then she kind of, you know, it was it was also very interesting um, when she did the pitch, when, when Sarah was doing the pitch. And then, of course, uh, Lilia came in with the flute <laughs> and the people with the ribbons and stuff. And, and Fairy Mae came in and then Sarah had to switch it up real quick. And she was able to use Fairy Mae and say, oh, you know, you can have nice, long, pretty hair like her. It's like, well, I think she was born with that. I don't know if she ever used your products necessarily to get that long hair. And then also, it's interesting that we have this fascination with long hair, particularly in the black community. We need to have that nice, long, pretty hair. Long and pretty tied together. Because if it's Mm -hmm. long, it's pretty. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, and and that was something that Addie was able to capitalize on as well. She promised if, if you use my products, your hair can look wavy like mine, nice and light brown and wavy and and uh, what is it three three C three B blend like mine. Um. Anyway, that was an aside. Uh, but yeah, it would have been. So Lilia and Fairy had this mother daughter relationship, a guardian, mm-hmm. uh, you know, child relationship it of course it would have been really great to see the progression of that we only saw the very beginning of it in part four um but we can only imagine what it might have been 
like to live in that environment, to come from an environment of, I, I guess, poverty um, into this environment of great wealth, um, you know, the level of wealth that most black people have never seen before, right. especially self-made wealth, um, you know, primarily, you know, in the hands of one black woman. Um, so it, I'm sure that had to have been a trip for Ferry to just go from, from literal rags to riches um, and then to, to maintain that and to get that opportunity to go to Spelman and be college educated and uh, come back and, and help to run the company. Um, you know, while Lilia is also out here be, living her best life, um, supporting the arts and supporting the queer community and, you know, running the streets of Harlem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Portia, you're on. Okay. Um, now, one thing, actually, Cynthia D., you brought up earlier in the conversation was just kind of the parallels um, that you saw between um, some of the uh, mentions of violence against black people yeah. in the film versus what we see now. It's almost a hundred year difference. That, that took place, part four took place in the early 20s. I remember a couple years ago, I went to the Civil Rights uh, Museum, Civil Rights Movement Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and it's located at the Lorraine Motel where uh, Dr. King was assassinated. Mm. Um, and I thought that it was just going to be all about Dr. King or it was just going to be all about the 1960s civil rights movement. They started at slavery and really, you know, they started at the abolitionist movement. Um, and it was a, it was a museum telling the history of resistance of black people in America. It's called the civil rights um, uh, movement museum, but it's, it's about all of it. And so that really put it all in perspective for me, realizing the totality. We called it different things. We called it abolitionist movement. We called it anti-lynching movement. We called it civil rights movement. We called it Black Lives Matter movement. But it's all the same thing. Right. Um, so it was just, it was just, you know, just brought that on home for me again when we see the conversation um, and, and lynching was mentioned a couple of times, but one particular uh, section was when uh, Ransom uh, was uh, told Sarah about weakness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was so heartbreaking. Um, yeah. It was, it was heartbreaking on, the, on a number of levels, yes. but of course, you know, Cynthia, do you want to expound on that? Um, yeah, I, I really liked that scene. The monologue was strong. Um, of course, the actor performed the monologue in, in a very heartfelt way. Um, it's, it's so many things that you can take from the monologue, but one thing specifically um, that he highlighted was that sweetness was number smart and that... If he had not been a black man in America, he might have been 
um, head of a bank or head of a corporation. And um, it just, it resonates with today because that's, you know, what's happening. We have to go to college, get educated, come out, do all the things that, you know, is said to be the right thing to do so that we can prepare in our careers, but we cannot change the color of our skin. I also took from his monologue, you know, just how we we judge each other. And he spoke a little bit about how he was so busy, you know, being overly critical of sweetness that sweetness died protecting his family. And he has to he has to live with that. Um, he has to live with that reality that he wasn't always so super nice to sweetness. But sweetness literally risked his life for the protection of his son. And I I I I I just feel like as a community our crutch is each other like we we should we should be lifting each other up it doesn't mean we can't be critical of some of the things we see within our community we we should always be discussing and trying to implement and change things but the way in which we treat each other matters especially if the world is not going to treat us with the the human decency of allowing us to stay alive so Mm -hmm. Because in this monologue, um, Ransom was describing, he started off saying that you can't even take, a black man can't even take his, his son out or a child out for ice cream, right? right. Sweetness was, was killed um, and hung on a tree um, for speaking or commanding himself confidently a certain way in the shop, in this ice cream shop um, by white men. And so while taking Ransom's son out for, for ice cream, so back then, you couldn't even take, you can't take a child out for ice cream. Um, today, you you can't even go for a jog, maybe, without being targeted and killed mm. um, in this state of Ahmed Aubrey. So this attack, this violence um, on, against the black body, right? There, you can't simply exist but it's for ice cream or jog, uh, jogging, it just reminds me again, and when I described maternal black health earlier, there's a book called Killing the Black Body that I remember reading in my African-American studies course at Syracuse, um, and it goes into that. It's by Dorothy Roberts um, about just systemic abuse on the black body, right? Whether it's the black woman's body or black men's body, um, it traces uh, pretty far um, what the agenda tends to be, um, which is against black bodies. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, the other thing that I'm struck by, um, you know, in, in what happened to sweetness, it's not even that you can't exist, it's that you can't even assert yourself or, or command respect as a human being, because what happened was uh, Sweetness took the child out for ice cream. A little boy bumped into him, knocked over his ice cream cone. Sweetness, you know, wanted the boy to apologize. 
And then, you know, these white men jumped in and said, oh, no, not only is this child not going to apologize, we're going to string you up. We're going to hang you for the offense of even thinking that you deserve any type of respect. Mm. You know, and sweetness, his crime was being bold enough to, you know, to to even think that he could speak to to these white men on a certain level. Mm. Um, You know, and even the fact that uh, while while, uh, Ransom was telling the story to Sarah, Sarah asked, you know, what happened to your son? Because he was there the whole time, and he said, no, you know, my son is okay. The, the shop owner hid him. And that says a lot. Not the shop owner, you know, watched out for him, and the shop owner, you know, he, he was fine. He went home. No, the shop owner had to hide this little black boy. Yeah. Because I'm sure they were looking for him, too, and would have thought nothing of killing him. Yeah. Or at the very least, making sure that his eyes were wide open while he saw sweetness hanging up from a tree. You take yeah. this home with you and, yeah. and be traumatized forever. And uh, it's just, it's something else when you think about that. And, um, you know, again, some people would like to think, oh, wow, you know, that was such a long time ago. That's so messed up. I can't imagine. No, you actually know how it feels because we see these examples today. Um, mm-hmm. You know, case in point with Cynthia Lilly, what you were just talking about with the mod Aubrey, I think about that, and it's just it's 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 terrifying to think of what he endured um, in his last moments on this earth. That's um, scary, and and there's so many, unfortunately, black people who who have the same moments, who have been terrorized and terrified and targeted for no reason. Um, except for maybe maybe their attitude wasn't right, or maybe they they were you know got smart at the mouth or something. Whatever it was, whatever offense these white people took, the you know the answer was death. It's wild. Yeah, and Ransom's boy. Go ahead. Sorry, this boy, although protected from seeing. From seeing um, or having to witness um, sweetnesses um, hanging, unfortunately today I don't know what we can do to protect our children from witnessing these police brutality killings in their homes. Yeah. You know, now I mean, it's imagine the youngest children who have phones, the age of these young children having a phone today means that's connected to the internet. It also means that uh, they're connected to imagery of, of black bodies being killed, especially, right, as it makes the new cycles and such. So, unfortunately, that's something we, we have to deal with today. How do we protect um, our kids from that imagery and that being normalized? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that we can. I, I, I'm. I don't. I don't think that we can. Actually, I think we can just educate each other. I think that we can rally around each other. Um, all of the protests and 
you know, for almost going toe-to-toe with our legislators, it is together, right, going toe-to-toe with that with our legislators is key in this moment. But I just think about, because, Portia, you mentioned that, um, you know, sweetness had the audacity to be bold. And I just think about how people, even in that time up until today, were killed for for nothing. I think the mm-hmm. blackness is the weapon, right? And mm-hmm. um, so, yes, he was bold. But let's take, for instance, Emmett Till, who we found out, you know, fairly recently, never really whistled at that white woman and was killed, mm-hmm. right? Um, Breonna Taylor, sleep in her house and was killed. Like, I don't think it's anything we can do because we can't change the color of our skin. It's, it's not possible, right? But the direct attack, and, and I, I, I want I want to use attack because it seems like that's only the words that people seem to understand are the, the ones that seem the most volatile. But, like, if we are... When we need to directly attack our legislation, our legislature, we that that's what we have to do. And I, I'm, I think I'm blessed. We're, but we're all blessed to live in a time where people are more adamant right now to do it because we have the space and time and opportunity. Being, you know, in quarantine. Yeah, I think you know that's one of the benefits of living in the information age. We have so many um, opportunities to connect with each other and to build community and to mobilize um, so that we can try to affect change um, and be creative in the ways that we affect change. But, you know, with that also comes, um, you know, to your point, Lily, just, you know, being inundated with uh, all this imagery, all these videos of black bodies being attacked um, and they don't go away. Once once it's on the internet, it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm reminded of, um, you know, the postcards that were made. You know, people would take pictures um, at lynchings and make postcards out of them and send them to people as keepsakes. Uh, they would burn black bodies and then cut them up and sell them as relics, as, you know, Put them in in stores, and you could go buy, literally go buy the knuckles of somebody that was that was murdered by a mob, um, you know. And I'm sure there are white people to this day who have those pieces of black bodies in their homes, passed mm-hmm. down from generation to generation. Um, My mother just showed me a, a picture of uh, the cops from. Elijah McClain's case and they were mm-hmm. reenacting what they did to that young man via photo um, and video. So it's still happening. What you're saying it's is still, still happening. happening. Yeah, I, I was hearing about um, uh, uh, some challenge that, that kids were doing online where they would have somebody lay down on the ground and another person put their knee on the neck. Yeah. Yeah. And take a picture and put it out there and smiling the whole time. I was, I'm just, I'm baffled. I'm baffled. I, you know, of course I get it. I mean, it's racism, but at the same time, I'm just like, I don't understand 
why this is still happening. Why are, are black people still being attacked and then being attacked again on top of that ridiculed and made fun of and it's entertainment. It becomes entertainment. It's, you know, it's instead of informing people and waking people up, now there's folks who are taking it and, you know, it's fun. It's trendy. It's scary. Oh my yeah. For Sarah, having um, come from, um, it seems like her first marriage was um, a little, it was abusive, right? So her having experienced that level of um, domestic violence early on can explain a little bit as to where she was, why she was so courageous in moving how she did it. So she was able to move all the way um, her home all the way, not just from Harlem, um, but also up to Irvington, right? So by the time she moved up to um, was it Westchester County, or a little bit further up to New York, um, she wasn't afraid to be the first, one of the first to buy a home there. Um, but black female ownership is, is a big deal. It's a big yeah. deal now. It yeah. was a big deal then. Um, I'm sorry, she moved from Indianapolis, right, to mm -hmm. Harlem and then um, Irvington, New York. Um, any thoughts on her property um, ownership, what it meant then and what it means today? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, we are coming off of uh, when, she, when she gets to Indianapolis and then she buys her home, which is where she lived and she worked out of, we are still just several years out from slavery. Um, the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, CJ's father would frequently talk about being on the plantation. And, you know, he talked about how difficult it was for him to maintain his relationship with, um, with CJ's mother. They both were on separate plantations and still trying to to make their their relationship work. And Sarah um, having it, uh, sorry, not Sarah, but um, um, CJ's, CJ's mother having an opportunity to leave, and then unfortunately she was killed when she decided to come back because she wanted to come back for her child and her husband. Um, you know, but they were property, so to go from being property to owning property, that's humongous, you know, and, and I, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine that it was still difficult for women to own property. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, even if they legally could, and I'm sure it was still very much unheard of and very difficult to maintain that property. Um, especially if you, weren't married. Um, and so for her, for Sarah to get this big mansion, um, and, and, and grow it to the point where she got too, she got to be too big for the mansion, um, and then had to buy a factory so that she could keep her business going. Um, you know, that, that's, those, those are big moves. And I think, uh, I don't know if it was, 
Annie or if it was Sarah, um, or maybe it was both, but the reports were that either one of them or both of them had buildings that were city blocks and, you know, that's where they manufactured, that's where they had their colleges, that's where they did their trainings, that's where, you know, they rented out space to uh, community members so that they could have events and they could have meetings, you know, not just building their own uh, wealth and building their own, um, you know, uh, meeting their own goals, but also helping the community uh, rise up and, and build their wealth and, and meet their own goals as well. Um, so, yeah. And then, again, coming to Harlem and, and Lilia, uh, converting those townhomes into, into safe spaces um, and, and being able to support the arts, but also to support um, a vulnerable community, such as the queer community, so that they could be able to live their lives um, in, in safety. And then, of course, there is a state right next to John D. Rockefeller. Uh, you know, as when I saw the, it, it almost looked like, um, you know, towards the end when they were celebrating after the convention, it reminded me of the Great Gatsby. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, dude. With all the fireworks and there was, you know, champagne and the music and people dancing and it just, you know, everything that you kind of see when when people talk about the Roaring Twenties, but you never really see that with black people. So to see black mm. people in that space and and doing all those things, um, it was it was amazing. So you know, if you do see those type of scenes and you see black people, it's usually as the musicians or it's usually as the maids or, you know, butlers or whatever, service people. You saw those too, but then you also saw the black people who were there um, as the party goers and then as the owner of the, of the estate. Um, so that was just wonderful. And then, you know, it was a really nice touch at the very end when um, Sarah is there looking at the fireworks with, Barry and Lilia, them in the present, and then Sarah also bringing in the memory of her parents. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't tell if they were slaves or not. Um, I think so. I think that was the imagery they were trying to project, you know, to go from, from that history to now, you know, looking out over all of this land that you own. 28,000 square feet. Awesome, oh. Amazing. Amazing. Amazing for 2020, but just, I can't, I just can't imagine what people were thinking in the 1920s. That had to have been just right. beyond. Right. Well, this wasn't even 1920. This was um, before 1920. And we know that because of suffrage, right? That was before we had the right to vote. This was like, 1916, 18, 19. So, I mean, for her to hit these marks before women were even given the right to vote, that's that extra mind-blowing for me, too. Like, amazing. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't even have a bank account, right, by, by yourself, let alone own a whole mansion and own businesses. It's just, again, amazing. Yeah, yeah, and to do it her way, you know, we even see 
uh, they had a nice little part where um, the first day of her convention, Sarah's met by protesters. And it's these black women protesting this other black woman like, no, mm. you know, I'm, yeah, this is great. However, um, what you're doing is wrong. You are about to sell us out. You're trying to expand, but you're expanding at our expense. What are we going to do? Um, you know, and Sarah was, you know, kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Because, yeah, she wants to keep expanding. And she sees she has this vision for herself and for, again, trying to build her legacy. Um, but at the same time, she also came to this point um, selling the idea that we can do this together. We are a group. We're, we're supporting each other. Um, you know, we're providing opportunities for each other. Um, and she had, she, she had a dilemma. She went to Rockefeller and Rockefeller was like, fire him. <laughs> Get rid of him. All they are are workers. Don't let you put, don't let them push you around. Yeah. You, you the owner, you, you do what you need to do. Oh, well. Mm. And Sarah was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> it was like uh, I gotta figure this out for myself. Yeah, and you know, and she she did right by them. She listened to them, and she was like, you know, this this is what I always wanted. She had an opportunity to expand into drugstores earlier, um, but CJ ruined it with his ego <laughs> yep. and yep. showing up to that meeting, you know, drunk. And so here she is, another chance at bat, and she she does it. She gets it. She gets the deal. And now she has to walk away from it um, because she decided that, you know, how she does business is just as important as, you know, her growing her business. She, she didn't want to do it at the expense of these Black women that she was in partnership with. So I appreciated that, um, you know, at least the way it was depicted in the film that she was able to uh, make her money, build her business on her own terms. Yeah. yeah. She was trying to, you know, it was like she was trying to, she did mention this in, in a previous episode. She wanted to be the next Rockefeller, the next, mm -hmm. you know, whatever Carnegie, whatever white man that you could think of. Mm -hmm. um, but she did it her way. Right. Yeah. I mean, home ownership is, is a big deal um, either way. Even today, um, we know that in our community, it's, it's a little bit harder for us uh, because we don't get the same amount of loans to, 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 to purchase a home. So once again, if, you just, if you're just comparing that, even though as women, we're, we're afforded a lot more we have more rights today. We can have our own house, our own bank of cards, and, and do a lot more than back in the day in 1916 or 1919. It's still, there's still barriers to home ownership, right? Whether it's loans, the taxes, um, and then just maintaining homes. A lot of people may have grown up in apartments, you know, most of their lives and don't realize there aren't experiences in you know, maintaining not just the yard, the um, living up to the town's um, ordinances and, and et cetera, et cetera, right? Or having a good plumber on hand and all of that, that has to be factored into it too. So 
um, home ownership today remains a big um, issue and not enough of us black people, black women own homes and then passing them down. We know for a fact, I mean, from having research online that um, even Madam T.J. Walker's home has gone through several hands, right? <laughs> Did everyone read up on that? Yeah, yeah. 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 So um, currently, I think, as a stands, um, Richard Lou Dennis, um, uh, a guy who helped found Nubian Heritage and um, hair care or body beauty care company, and I think now he's involved with Shea Moisture, I believe him and his foundation or his family have acquired the home in order to help make it into like either a think tank slash museum slash yeah, like yeah. Mm-hmm. um just it's it's still like a landmark and a preserved space and there was a like a diplomat couple that helped put in a lot of TLC and work into preserving the home over the last I would say twenty years. I mean they even paid the crazy amount of taxes. If you can imagine, early time today, um, if she was the first black woman to move into that community at that time, today the property values are astronomical and the taxes are high. So the the diplomat couple that um, discussed it, I think they're from the Caribbean, they were saying, like, you know, the taxes were up. <laughs> it's happened well, but this has been a labor of love for them because wow. I get, they just couldn't see, you know, letting go such a historical, historical home. Um, so right now, um, it seems like, um, it's in the hand of a, in the hands of a man who has invested a great deal of time and energy into, um, the black hair care space already. So it should be in good, in good hands, but it, I believe it's in a, like in a national trust, it's officially like, a, um, a protected, legally protected state or landmark. How how do you pronounce his name? Rissolo De- Dennis? Rich Richelieu. He's librarian. I want to say Richelieu Dennis is his okay. name. Um, he has like a little bit of a beard. You remember him when like the Shane Moisture hair care from No, yeah, I know who he is. I definitely yeah. know who he is. I couldn't pronounce the name because because he was recently in the news. Mm, yep. Because, yep, you yep, know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what now? What now? Yes. Cynthia, you want to say? All right. Well, <laughs> oh, dear. so, you oh, know, he's God. over Essence Communications and he there is an anonymous group of women who have written this very lengthy account of he, him, and um, several women on the board at Essence um, and their treatment of the black female staff, him specifically, there's some sexual assault accounts. And his wife is the head of human resources, so they can't go to the human resources department to file complaints. So they are demanding for he and the women who are on the board and who also are leading um, Essence Communications to step down. He recently did step down. Wow. Okay. And and mind you, this is all during the time of Essence's virtual 
Essence yeah, Festival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So wow. this is a really big, you know, high high visibility kind of time for them. That anonymous letter went around the world. It was a shot heard around the world. And um, you know, and and what's most interesting about it is that some of their demands were met because they asked for people to resign, and people have started to resign. Wow. Okay. Yep. Yep. I I see it now. <laughs> All right. I see it. It's right in front of me. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, okay. All right. Well, it remains to be seen then what he does with um Miss Walker's home, I guess. Yeah. It, it'll be very interesting. But yes, to your point, you know, I think we mentioned in a previous episode, um, you know, just kind of thinking about some of the um, uh, examples of uh, Madam C.J. Walker's legacy to this day. And, you know, hair care, uh, the hair care industry is definitely um, a major part where we can see um, the effects of, of what she did um, today, when you know, especially Black-owned um, hair care lines like Shea Moisture, which was his line. Maybe still is. I don't know. Seems like he's he's been making a name for himself, particularly yeah. with black women, uh, you know, in black women's spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Shea Moisture and with Essence, and and now with um, the Walker family. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think it's time to take uh, this episode through the Dorsey Flowers test? I think so. I, well, you know, I think we've talked a lot. Cynthia L., is there anything else you want to you want to say? Any final thoughts about not only this particular episode, but just the entire miniseries? Well, I mean, it's it's definitely been inspiring to to watch this um, real life inspired story. I mean, if she was able to do all of this, like I mentioned before, before we were even legally allowed to do some of these things, who What's to keep us from doing more today, right? Um, so it's just one of one of the best stories um, that I've seen in a long time. This series came out maybe what in February, a little bit before that. Um, once in a while, I'll go back and I'll research something about the house or the sister. You know, I keep on kind of uh, looking for more information about her and her legacy. And today in particular, or this past Juneteenth, with the push to support more Black-owned businesses, you know, it's just inspired me to also just go that extra step and look and, and support Black-owned or Black-founded businesses. So, you know, there would be no Carol's daughter, um, Shea Moisture was mentioned before, and um, Jane Carter Solution, a lot of other hair care or just beauty brands if it weren't for um, Madam C.J. Walker. So um, a lot of this is coming full circle, even pre-COVID, but it's nice to have a blueprint of sorts on how to start your own business and move it forward. She certainly didn't do it alone. She had a lot of help, and that was great to see, too, like how she relied on her family, her lawyer friend, Ransom, and um, she definitely just, or her neighbors, she did not do it alone. So 
Um, maybe that's where she trumps a little bit of that strong black woman trope. She did employ um, as many of her resources as possible. But again, it's just nice to have a blueprint like her. Yeah. Yeah. So let us put her through, or the story rather, Netflix's self-made through the Dorothy Wilder. Let's do it. Okay. So, Cynthia L., you should know that we have a two-step process here. Um, But, you know, it's it's a couple sub-steps underneath, so don't pay that any mind. It's a multi-step process. Um, And the first step is as follows. So, we want to know, regardless of age, sexual orientation, trans identity, disability, religion, or nationality, whether in live action or animated films, characters who count as black and female are characters who identify or are identified as female human beings and identify or are identified as black human beings and are not portrayed by non-black and or non-female actors. So basically, do we see black female characters played by black female actors? Yes. 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 Okay. Step one complete. Step two. There's eight steps in step two. Um, Number one, are there at least two named black female characters? Yes. Yes, they are. Absolutely. Do they talk to each other? Yes, they do. Okay. Do they talk to each other about something other than a male or a non-black female character? Yes. Um, yes, they do. A whole bunch of hair. <laughs> uh huh. Hair and business. Mm hmm. Okay, number four. Is a black female character primary? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Does a black female character have the ability to make her own choices? And then, yes. Um, yeah. yes. Yeah. Does a black female character live into the end of the film? Yeah. 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 Um, are the black female characters non-stereotypical? Yes. yes. Does a black female character have historical, political, or social relevance? Yes, yes, yes absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Definitely absolutely. historical, political, and social. All yes. of the above. All yes. of the above. Yes. Okay. So, and we add extra points if the film has a black woman or a black writer. This has both, so we'll add two extra points. Yay! Okay, so let's calculate this thing. All right. We looks like we have another great score on our hands. This. Um, self-made part four going through the Dorothy Flowers test has scored 10. Yay! Woo! Yay! Yeah. Great work. Now that's past with flying colors. <laughs> <laughs> great, great work. This is yeah. the last two I would say are probably 
my favorite um, of the because it, it was rough, a rough start for me with this limited series. I was like, what is really happening? But <laughs> I will say the end, the two episodes that close out the series were really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. I must say that I kind of had a bit of a roller coaster. I, so this is my <laughs> second time seeing all four episodes, seeing the entire series. I saw the the entire series when it first was released on Netflix, and at first I liked it, but then I heard all this controversy about historical inaccuracies, and you know, especially the Addie Monroe, Annie Malone kind of situation. That I think that was probably the biggest kind of knock against it, and I felt disappointed. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, you know, watching it again. with this podcast, I gained an appreciation. I'm glad, you know, I, I still think that there may have been areas uh, for improvement, but overall, I'm so glad that they did this because at the very least, it it uh, introduces us to people that we really need to know. We need to know uh, Lilia Walker. We need to know yeah. Adam C.J. Walker. We need yeah. to know yep. Barry May and, you know, even what she did to help continue the legacy. I'm sure this story could, could, you know, be extended beyond just these four episodes. And, you know, even the fact that there was a mini series, because that doesn't usually happen when you're talking about biopics about black women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the most we could hope for is just a two hour movie and that's it. And they were able to make it multi-parts and, and uh, they had time to kind of talk a bit more about some of the smaller things. Um, so yeah, I, I just appreciated all this dedicated time to a black woman that all of us should know and a black woman that whether we know it or not, um, you know, really influenced and defined, um, culture for, uh, black America and for America as a whole. Right. Absolutely. Did Dorsey, do you have any last? thoughts for us on self-made i do not if if you guys are all (laughs) wrapped up i i want to say thank you so much cynthia lully for coming on the show today uh you yourself being a creative a lover of hair um a lover Mm -hmm. of knitting thought it not (laughs) robbery today to come join us and we appreciate you so much as um a insightful contribution to this episode and as our line sister. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank Thank you for having me. It's been awesome. I could not have picked a better to discuss this with. It's it's been very, very educational. So I thank you for this. Oh, great. Well, everyone, we would love to add your opinion to the conversation. Send us an email with your thoughts to youngblackandbrave at gmail.com. That's youngblackandbrave at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. We are on Instagram as youngblackandbrave. We are on Facebook as youngblackandbrave. And we are on Twitter as YBB podcast we will talk to you again next week in the meantime stay brave
Peace.